Again, good morning. If you would take your Bible and turn to our text this morning, which is found in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 32. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. 32. We do want to continue a little series that we've been doing, or you could say it's part of the bigger series that we've been doing, uh, with the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. So currently we're doing a little series on Moses and the early chapters of the book of Exodus. You could say Moses the early years, but as Ray was reminding me last Sunday, um, Moses really started his ministry at age 80. And so if you say Moses, the early years, well, you got to qualify that. So I think Pastor Ray is going to enroll in seminary so that in a couple decades he can pastor a church. But we do want to continue that little series. And if you're physically able to stand, even though a brief reading of Scripture will be very brief, and then we'll remain standing for prayer. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Chapter 22, Matthew 22, 32. 32a. The Bible says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us. We thank you for the opportunity that we have not had actually in a good many weeks now, a month and a half or so, to observe the Lord's Supper. Thank you that you've given this to us. Lord, help us to truly be focused on the gospel. Lord, we could do these things this morning. We could sing these great songs. We could observe the Lord's Supper. We could have the time of sermon and not be as clearly focused on the gospel and on Jesus Christ as we should be. So we pray for your help. Through the Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, we pray. Help us now. We echo the prayer that our brother Larry prayed for those in need, those who are hurting. Lord, we look to you even with expectation, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So hopefully your Bibles are open there to Matthew chapter 22. I want to speak to you today. Let me give you the title. I want to speak to you about the God who came down. The God who came down. Let me just give you a little map of where we're going. So we want to start here in Matthew chapter 22. And then we want to go uh, to the very important background to this passage in the Old Testament. So again, we want to start in Matthew chapter 22, and then we want to go to the very important Old Testament background before we land back here 
before we land back in Matthew 22 and the New Testament. Well, friends, it's December the 18th, and that can only mean one thing. I mean, I guess it also means uh, Taylor Olson's birthday. But beyond that, it's December 18th, and that can only mean one thing, and that is that Easter is coming soon. And so we better start talking about the resurrection. In this immediate season, of course, we remember uh, Matthew 121, you will call his name Jesus for, Matthew 121, for he will save his people from their sins. We're also mindful, even though I didn't open the service this way, he is risen, he is risen indeed. We're also mindful at Christmas that when it says you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, that ultimately there is no salvation apart from the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I say, of course, in jest that it's December 18th and Easter is coming, but it is. It is. And we remember the cross and the resurrection where the Lord Jesus Christ achieved our salvation. The first thing that we want to see this morning is Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. Look at it again with me. The first half of the verse. It says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And in due time, in a few minutes, we want to look at the Old Testament background of this before we come back. And I hope you'll go with me this morning. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. Is there marriage in the afterlife? Is there marriage in the afterlife? Well, forget, forget afterlife. In the new heavens and new earth, will there be marriage? Or, or you could just simply say, will there be marriage in heaven? How does, or, or does the Bible address this question? And if it does, what does it say? Well, the Bible says to us that there will be no marriage in heaven. Maybe we need to qualify that. Maybe we need to say that the Bible says there will absolutely be marriage in heaven. The marriage, of course, between God and his people. But marriage as we typically think of it, right? As we think of it off the bat. Individual human marriage. There will not be marriage as we know it in heaven. Although there will be, as this points forward this morning to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be that corporate, corporate marriage between God and His people. But the Bible is actually, is actually pretty clear on this question. Now, if, if you're in a, in a good marriage, or maybe you're on the cusp of, of being married, and if you're in one of those two scenarios, you think, man, it, it would almost be wrong of God to not let me be married to the one that I love for all of eternity. I want to be with you for all of eternity. And of course, that shows in part uh, how we don't yet understand how great what is waiting for us is. Because as I say, the Bible is actually clear on this matter, that there will be no marriage as we know it in the new heavens and the new earth. As we look at this first thing this morning, which is Matthew chapter 
22, verse 32. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And I'm saying that repeatedly as a statement. I know there's a question mark there at the end. We'll get to that. But there was this group of people, if I could tell you very briefly, there was this group of people called the Sadducees. You know, we used to have a song back at camp, you know, about the Pharisees. They're not fair, you see. And the Sadducees, they're Sadducee and, and all this stuff. That's, not, that's corny. But there's the, this group of people called the Sadducees, and maybe they were sad. But what defined the Sadducees, one of the things is that they did not believe in the resurrection. I think it's neat that we were just confessing our faith in the resurrection of the body. Now, I'm not so much talking about the fact that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That had not yet happened at this particular point. They didn't believe in that for sure. But I'm just talking about resurrection in general. These people called the Sadducees, some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. Maybe you could talk about the immortality of the soul, the immortality of the soul, but, but bodily resurrection? No, no. What they did believe in, what they did believe in was the Pentateuch. You know what that is? The Torah. Everybody should know the first five books of the Bible. Okay, Boys and girls of all ages, we all should know the first five books of the Bible. And what are they? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes called the Pentateuch, five, or the Torah, the law of Moses. This was their Bible. They may, these Sadducees, they may have kind of accepted other parts of the Old Testament because there were other parts of the Old Testament. But for them, if you really wanted it to be really true, it had to come from the Pentateuch. And so they said, there's nowhere in the first five books of the Bible that teaches resurrection. You see? Maybe if you want to go to Daniel chapter 12. And, but what Jesus says, look at verse 31, Matthew 22, 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was said to you by God? Jesus puts this to them, to the Sadducees. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. What Jesus was doing was actually pretty masterful because he is the master. And he was taking their Bible, okay, you say that you only really believe the first five books of the Bible. Have you ever read what God said to you? That I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Do you not see according, listen, according to your own methods of interpretation? This may seem, may seem weird to us what Jesus does, but he's actually using their own methods of interpreting the Bible. And we see here in this story, they're left kind of dumbfounded. And he says... You never read this? And so my question to you, and I've got some questions for you this morning. That's probably the most important thing about my sermon, in my opinion, about this message are these questions. Here's the first one. There's going to be questions. Here's the first one. Have you read what God said? 
Jesus says in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 22, look at it again. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what, what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's pulling that from the Pentateuch, from the first five books of the Bible. And so my question for you, Crossway, is this. Have you read what God said? Would you please keep your place here and go with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, part of the Torah, part of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 3. Now I want you to have your antenna up. You remember our key text this morning. And I want you to have your antenna up to match it when we come to it. But I think it's important not just to say, draw a line from here to here, draw a line from Matthew 22, 32 to, to this verse, and there is this verse in Exodus 3, but to get the story. Listen carefully to the story, and then in your own mind you can say ding, ding, ding when you get the verse that Jesus quotes from. Exodus, verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. What does it say? The mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, mark that, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning Yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Exodus 3, 5. Take your sandals off of your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Question number one, have you read what God said? Jesus in Matthew 22:32 is quoting from the story of what? From the story of the burning bush. The bush that burns that is not consumed. Question number 2. For you crossway, do you know that God came down? It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Do you know that God came down? At Christmas, God came down, but let us be precise. When we say Christmas, we, may, we mean incarnation, God in the flesh. Now that's nice, but more than nice, that's much too tame. The greatest miracle of all, God came down, the Son of God, born of woman, born under the law. We say God came down, but have you ever thought, is there anything that went up 
Yes, our cries for help, our groans, our sighs and miseries, these went up and God came down. He heard, he saw, he knew our cries. He heard the sound up and down, down and up, the Son of God that we might live. Do you know that God came down? I want to draw the line from Matthew twenty-two thirty-two to, of course, you saw it, right? Genesis or Exodus three six. I want to draw the line to Exodus three six, but I want us to see this in context, because I think when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, which it does all the time, I think it doesn't have just one verse in mind, but it has also the context in mind. Look at verse seven of Exodus chapter three. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Exodus 3.8, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Mark that. I have, who's speaking here? The Lord speaking. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them, which is to say God didn't save his people just to leave them in some neutral state, but to bring them into a positive state and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Notice again verse 9, and in a minute I want you to compare it to verse 7. What does the Lord say? He says, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression. Look at verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. My friend, look at me. God knows. Even here today, even you here today, God knows. God hears. God sees. Particularly, of course, it's talking about His people. His people, the trials of His people. God knows. God hears. God sees. Do you know that God came down? Look again at verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them. The word, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service, the word that can easily describe verse 8 is the word that we use at this season. It's the word advent. Advent, coming or arrival. I have come down to deliver them. Just as a kind of by the way, do you know that Jesus was born, but that the Son of God has always existed? You know that? Do you know that Jesus was born, but that the Son of God has always existed? 
Here we have this famous, this well-known story of Moses at the burning bush. And at age 40, you might remember at age 40, back in chapter 2, he has been raised as an adopted child of the Egyptians. He's been raised in Pharaoh's house. He's been raised by Pharaoh's own daughter. And around about the age of 40, he decides to go out. The Lord put it into his heart to go out among his people. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. He went out among his people. He did do a very rash thing. He ended up murdering a man who was a taskmaster over one of his people. But then he flees to Midian. He flees to Midian. He ends up getting married to the priest of Midian's daughter. And for 40 years, friends, we, all, we sometimes we say, Lord, what are you doing in my life? What are you doing? Well, so many times in the Old Testament, not to mention Jesus, who is the chief shepherd, so many times in the Bible, God has men who are shepherds like David and like Moses. And the time of preparation may be a long time. And in fact, it may never come a time when you or I are some type of superstar for God like Moses became. But for 40 years, listen to me, for 40 years in Midian, the text leads us to see he's just tending the sheep. He's just tending the sheep. And then one day this 40-year experienced shepherd, we are not to think this is just some natural phenomenon like some Christian scholars who are liberal, not in the political sense, but because they don't believe the word of God. They say, well, we can explain the burning bush. You can't explain the burning bush apart from the supernatural. You explain the burning bush according to the supernatural God. And Moses, this experienced shepherd, says, I know something is different here. This is not normal. And so he turns aside to look at the bush that is burning but is not consumed. My question for you is, who is the angel of the Lord? Who is the angel of the Lord? Now, if you haven't picked up on this already, I am emphasizing verse 8, which is ultimately, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. The Bible, friends, is clear that the exodus of God's people out of Israel is the picture of what Jesus did for us in a much greater way on the cross and in his resurrection. And so I am underlining that, that when it says, I have come down to deliver, we know today that God came down at Christmas. Love came down. But my question, as I say, is who is the angel of the Lord? Forty years as an adopted Egyptian. And then from age 40 to age 80, he's an exile from his people, the Hebrews, and from his adopted family. And he's just tending the sheep, tending the sheep. My friend, be faithful where you're at. Be faithful where you're at. And then God appears to him. God appears to him. And who is the angel of the Lord? Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. This is not the only time, of course, in the Bible where you see the angel of the Lord. You know that, right? Let me cut to the chase. Many people, and I am very open, I'm more than open to this idea, 
many people, and I am also very open to this idea, this is, in my estimation, the pre-incarnate Christ, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Dwayne Garrett says this, listen to what he says, the traditional, right, the, the traditional idea that the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity is not, he says, just some pious projection of post-New Testament Christian teaching onto the Old Testament. Okay, what he's saying? He's saying it's not just Christians who now have the New Testament who like to look back and to transform in maybe a non-helpful way everything in the Old Testament to be about Jesus. No, he says what he's saying is the traditional idea. There are, not everybody agrees with this, but the traditional idea that this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ He says this is in fact the only way to make sense of the seemingly contradictory portrayal of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. How do you make sense? Not just here, listen to me, but when the angel of the Lord is spoken of in the Bible, if you study those passages in the Old Testament where it's the angel of the Lord, well, my friends, if you want to get theological, it is a theophany. What's a theophany? It's appearance of the divine, appearance of the Lord, appearance of God. It is an appearance of God, but can we also say that it is, in all probability, even according to the Word, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-Christmas Jesus Christ. That's why I say to you, do you know that Jesus was born, but that the Son of God has always existed? This God that we worship, and we must behold our God. We must make sure that we are worshiping the right God. The biblical God, this God is awesome. This God is one God in three persons. Think about this. One more thing on this. Think about this. Again, this is from Garrett. God is the Father in heaven at the same time that he is incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, praying to the Father. God is the Father in heaven at the same time that he is incarnate in the flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth praying to the Father. And we don't fully understand. We look at these angel of the Lord passages and we say, well, uh, I read this and how can you say that? Have Have you really looked at it carefully? I'll leave it at that. Do you know that Jesus was born but that the Son of God has always existed? For me, this is part of the proof in the pudding. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. That needs to be our response as well. Lord, here I am. Here I am. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. That means if you could go there. Next question. Is your hope in the resurrection is your hope in the resurrection Uh, the Sadducees you might remember did not believe in the resurrection what did they believe in they believed strongly in the first five books of the Bible that's good that's good 
I mean, we are impoverished because we might, we might ignore the Old Testament. Or we might ignore the first five books of the Bible. At least they had that. But boy, they were dead wrong. You can be so right and you can be dead wrong because you miss Jesus. It's all, listen to me, it's all about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You can be a Bible scholar. You can be a Bible scholar and miss everything because you miss Jesus. And you miss a true knowledge and a true relationship with God. Oh, they loved the first five books of the Bible. They did not believe in a resurrection. And of course, as we've seen, Jesus said, Matthew 22, 32a, Exodus 3, 6, but not just Exodus 3, 6, the whole story. Jesus said, have you read, have you read what God said to you in your own Bible? Not, not I was the God of your father and the God of Abraham and Isaac. I am. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What did Jesus think that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob never died? Jesus knew that they died. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been long dead. But nevertheless, God is not, Hebrews eleven six 6, embarrassed, afraid to be called their God. God is not only some distant God. Oh, he's holy. He is distant. He is separate. But he also comes near. He is the God who came down. And I ask you, is your hope in the resurrection? And not just, is your hope in the resurrection? Listen to me. Listen and answer honestly. Is your hope in the God who raises the dead? Are you alive or dead spiritually? Is your hope in the God who raises the dead? Are you hoping and trusting in any way in your own self to, to do good works and to raise the dead, to raise yourself? You've got to understand that you're spiritually dead. You're bankrupt. You're a sinner. You're in desperate need of God's mercy. Is your hope in the God who raises the dead? Look at Matthew twenty-two twenty-three. Look at the Bible. Matthew twenty-two twenty-three. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for her. Now, Jesus, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. Are you trekking with that story at all? Is that, a, uh, is that a real deal, Old Testament type of story? No, they're totally making this up. It's a bunch of junk. They're totally making this up. But they think they've got something. Verse 28, Matthew twenty-two, twenty-eight. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And, of course, we could go back and look at the background of this. It is true that Moses talked about something called leveret marriage, where if a brother dies and he doesn't have any children, then his brother should marry the, the widow and raise up children for his dead brother. Okay, But don't worry about all that. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, Let me be very polite, Jesus said. Jesus answered them, You're wrong. You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Here's my answer, Jesus said. Here's my answer. My answer is, you are wrong. 
Let me tell you two reasons why you're wrong. Number one, verse 29, because you know neither the scriptures, number two, nor the power of God. You don't know God. If you knew God, you would know that the same God who created man out of the dust of the earth can certainly raise the dead. You also don't know the Bible, and you think you know the Bible, but you don't. Verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Don't ever tell me Jesus isn't one possessing all authority. Read these words. He possesses all authority. He's not tiptoeing around the roses. I am the God, verse 32, of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Here it is. Here it is. I read from verse 23 to simply make this point. I read all of this so that you would underline in your mind verse 32b. Here's the payoff. Here it is. You ready? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Oh, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Because no man spoke like this. Because no man handled the word of God like this. Because no man interpreted the word of God. Because, listen, the man that was speaking to them was the man who, we could say, wrote their scriptures. He is, underline that in your mind, 32b. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus knew, as I said, Jesus knew that when, that when God said that to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been long dead. And he's also not saying that they had already been physically raised. The resurrection, friends, is yet to come. The new heavens and the new earth, the consummation of all things, the new creation, the physical reality, the resurrection. But believers, though believers die, yet they live. Though believers die in Christ, yet they live. And one day they will be raised. Believers are hidden in union with Christ and will be raised with Christ. Is your hope in the resurrection this Christmas? In God who raises the dead. Is your hope in the God of the living? One more. One more. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. you understand and do you know that God is self-existent? Question number one, where have we been? Question number one, have you read what God said? Have you? Do you know that at Christmas God came down? Exodus 3.8 Do you know that Jesus was born but that the Son of God has always existed? That's awesome. Is your hope in the resurrection in the God who raises the dead, in the God of the living? Do you know that God is self-existent? Let's summarize everything. Let's summarize everything. Acts chapter 7, verse 30. Acts chapter 7, verse 30. 
Stephen says, Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have what? I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Fantastic. Just a, a summary right there. A commentary, a summary of everything that we've seen this morning. Do you see that? Do you see that? Exodus 7, 30 through 34. I didn't read 30. Look at 35. Look at 35. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. The angel, I say, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. Do you know that God is self-existent? Ladies, in your book study, ladies, in the study that you're doing, the attributes of God, do you know that He is holy, holy, holy? What does the story of the burning bush mean if not to say, don't come too close, take off your sandals, don't look with direct gaze. God is holy, holy, holy. Sinners cannot be in His presence unless God comes down in the person of Jesus Christ. He is self-existent. Why do I say that? Acts 7.32 I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac, and you know maybe what I'm about to say. Who did God reveal himself to be? Two words in English. I am. What does it mean for God to be self-existent? It means that God needs nothing and no one. The God of the Bible needs no one and nothing. He is self-existent. We, everything in this world and everyone on the, in this world needs God. He is dependent on no one. We are all dependent on Him. He, if we can say it like this, He and He alone has life in and of Himself. He alone is self-existent, and that is good news. It's good news that Psalm 50 says, Hey, listen, if I were hungry, you would never know about it. If I actually needed those sacrifices, if I somehow needed you to sacrifice to me the blood of bulls and goats, oh, no, no, no. No, that, that, that's not who I am. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving through Jesus Christ. Don't offer the blood, the blood of bulls and goats because they point to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Don't think that God needs anything. Don't think that God needs you. He doesn't need anything because He is holy, 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 blessed Trinity. He's blessed Trinity. He's, he's self-existent. He is very much complete and, and happy in and of Himself. He is the blessed God. And from this blessedness, from this self-existence overflows in his to his glory and for and by his grace do you know that he is holy 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 this christmas christian christian 
Christian, behold your God. Behold your God. I love this story. The story is told about the guy who tricked a man into reading the prayer on a tract by claiming that his eyesight was too bad to read it. Here's a gospel tract. My eyes are too bad. Could you read the prayer on the back of that tract? The guy went on to read the copyright date and everything. And then the man who was witnessing to him pronounced the man a Christian. That's terrible. Here, here's a gospel tract. My eyes are bad. Would you read it and especially read the prayer? You're saved. You're saved. Tony Marita says this, and with this I close. That is not what a real sinner's prayer that God hears is all about. I hope you've heard this over and over in Exodus and in Acts. God heard. God saw. God knew. God hears the groans of his people. A prayer that God hears is when a person genuinely cries out to God for mercy and forgiveness in repentance and faith. Would you do that this morning if you're not a follower of Christ? And if you are a follower of Christ, would you do that? Would you do that this morning if you're here and not a Christian by the grace of God? A prayer that God hears is when a person genuinely cries out to God for mercy and forgiveness in repentance and and faith. Listen, if you will cry out to him, he will hear you and save you. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. None at all. It's not about a magical formula. It is about crying out over the misery of your sin and begging Jesus for mercy. Really, it's in that sense, it's actually very simple. It's about recognizing your desperate plight as a sinner before God and begging him for mercy through Jesus Christ. God came down to deliver his people. And this is a picture of that that we have this morning. Let's pray before we look at the Lord's Supper together. Let's bow our heads together. Well, we thank you that at Christmas, God, the Son of God, came down to deliver his people. We thank you, O oh God, our great God, that the Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt among us, not just in appearance, not as some figment of our imagination, but real flesh and blood. We praise you, O oh God. We thank you that you are the God who sees you know, you hear, no man seeks after God. None of us were seeking you, but you heard our cries and our own sin and rebellion. We praise you for your mercy. Help us to look to the resurrection. Help us to hope in God. Help us to hope in God and not trust in ourselves and not in anything else, but in you and in your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.